Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the diverse worlds of regenerative living, permaculture, and natural building as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher, and I'm thrilled to guide you through this week's episode. So let's jump right in. Sarah from New Society Publishers. At New Society, we are committed to ensuring that the health and diversity of the environment is conserved for the benefit of future generations. Find out more about how we put people and planet first at newsociety.com or on any of your favorite social media channels. All right, welcome everyone. Now, the last time I caught up with Darren Doherty for this podcast was back in season two. We talked a lot about his background and entry into ecological agriculture and how that journey informed his development of the Regrarians platform and outlook on the potential of regenerative farming. Now, I recently caught up with him again to investigate the new chapter of the Regrarians Handbook, which he and his team just released. Chapter 5 of the 10 in the book which are being released one by one in digital format on their website focuses on forests and all the configurations that they come in. Since I covered many of the first few topics from this chapter and other episodes in this ongoing series on reforestation and agroforestry, I wanted to get Darren's take on specific management techniques in a commercially productive woody perennial system. This covers much more than just trees and includes plants of that classification at nearly every level of a forest ecology, such as bushes and understory crops. In this interview, we start by going over the three main techniques for managing established woody species, which are pruning, thinning, and coppicing, as well as the incredible amount of things that you can accomplish if you understand how to use them effectively. From there we look into harvesting from all the different major types of yields and balancing the need to incorporate efficiency into your system while maintaining a healthy ecosystem that wants more diversity and organic patterning. We also talk about how to mitigate the initial cost of establishing tree and perennial plants by using upcycled and salvaged materials to start sprouting trees quickly and cheaply right away. By the end, Darren also touches on the importance of intervention in our landscapes to more effectively manage wildfires and fire-prone areas. Now before we get started, I'll just point out that the interview starts really abruptly because I lost the beginning of the audio with the introductions and the pleasantries. So try as I might after three seasons of producing this show, I'm still a complete amateur with audio software, so forgive me for another awkward start to this session. The good news is that it all goes smoothly after the start. If any of you want to hear more about Darren's background and journey to become the world-renowned regenerative farm designer and educator that he is, I highly recommend the first interview we did for this show back in Season 2. I've put a link to that show as well as all the other resources in the show notes for this episode at AbundantEdge.com. Now we'll jump straight into the questions with Darren. Focusing back now on the the forestry systems that many people are trying to implement now, you've got Mm -hmm. a whole section in this chapter on the maintenance of forestry and agroforestry Mm -hmm. systems in Mm -hmm. covering pruning, thinning, and coppicing, especially in detail. Mm -hmm. Could you Mm -hmm. start by identifying the three of those and sort of the differences between them? So pruning, what did you say? (laughs) Sorry. Pruning, (laughs) Pruning, thinning, and coppicing, yeah. Well, pruning, thinning, and coppicing. So pruning, um, well, particularly when we've, this is not for every woody plant system, but when you're trying to obtain, uh, well, higher yields, I mean, these systems are best cultivated. Um, 
So if you want to get well, low-grade yields, um, then don't prune any tree that you put in. And just, you'll just let the tree make its own mind up um, about, uh, about how it will respond to the position that it's in. And that may not be how you, how, that may not fit in with your broader goals. So, you know, if we look, we could look at um, particularly pruning and thinning as being interventions that we make around the physiological form of a, of a species, of a woody plant species, such that we can make, take, uh, let's say, corrective actions to, to have that species. Um, produce to our benefit um, and do so more reliably given some of the constraints that there would be if we didn't do those interventions. So pruning is very important for, you know, for woody, for, for trees that are producing timber or lumber um, so that you can create the perfect log. Yeah. Um, so you have, you know, if you just left trees of, to their own devices, you know, you'll get one or two, per hectare that produce the, or per acre that produce the perfect log, the rest of them will be firewood at best or pulpwood or some other very low end use. Whereas if you put a little bit of time and effort into that, which in itself can be recreational. I know a lot of farmers who have a little forestry block and they go out at the end of the day or early in the morning, they go for a walk, take their, take their loppers out there and, and go through and, and prune half an acre and feel really good about it and then come back another year later or whatever and, and do have another go at those same trees. And, and it's that's not the thing a very... with these slower maturing systems. It's not like it's daily maintenance that you have to do. This can be easily integrated with a much more maintenance intensive production on other parts well, of the land. Well, that's right. I mean, obviously, you know, if you're in the, in the tropics and you're growing very fast growing species, but if it's timber species, even there, you're not there every day with the secateurs or the loppers. Um, it doesn't, it's not that fast. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, and even, you know, we look at the syntropic agroforestry systems, which have come into vogue, um, thanks to the great work of Ernst Gotch as the, uh, instigator of all of that, but then all of his people who followed his work, I mean, even with them, um, I mean, that's probably the, in, in the agroforestry space, that's probably the highest intervention, um, system that I know of. Uh, because you're not just pruning trees for form purposes, you're also pruning them and um, thinning them for, for, their, for their biomass um, contributions. Um, even then, the, I haven't seen the stats, but it's, it's intensive, but it's not that intensive. Um, the intensity is, is perhaps more on the species that the target crop species that you're growing in between, which you might, need to go and attend to every day or every other the woody plant systems just don't go that fast so so then you get to the you know if you look at fruit tree pruning and all of that and a lot of people know about the importance of that to let light through and to and to let a lot more air flow through to 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 promote particular branches and not to have too much fruit because if you allow every flower to, to turn into fruit, well, then you'll get a lot of, in a lot of cases, a lot of small fruit and, and not, um, not a lot of big, bigger marketable fruit. And so there's those sorts of things. Um, and then you get to thinning. Thinning is the action of particularly uh, in, in, uh, in timber production systems or um, wood, uh, wood plant, uh, wood, 
wood production systems where we're, we're usually growing or we're overstocking a system with a number of trees so that they will purposely compete with each other for light and so grow. And so as they do so, they'll all reach for the stars, you know. And as they do, there comes a point because of their artificially high density that they'll not only start to compete for, for light, but start to compete for moisture and nutrients. And so if you don't get in there early enough, then that might cause a, a, a rapid slowdown in the growth rate of all of those involved and a change in their form. So they don't get fat anymore. They all stay quite skinny. And there's not much value in having a, a forest, a timber plantation of skinny trees. It's not really the, the, the objective. <laughs> That's not what so, we're going for. Yeah, so, so we go in there and we start to thin out those, those uh, ones for a start, which don't have um, as good a form as others. Um, and that leads us to the coppicing discussion, that if I do that and those species are ones, so a coppicing tree is one, or a coppicing woody plant is one, where if you cut it, it then grows back. Um, some some trees and woody plants, you cut them and they don't grow back. That's the end of the tree. So, And we often promote coppicing species because you, you get something that's perpetual, that's always regenerating with every harvest, and that's really valuable And um, because you don't have to replant it. And, you know, if you know how much effort and energy and uh, intervention is involved with replanting, I, a lot of time you'd think, well, why the hell would I do that? Um, you're better off picking species that, that just regrow. So that all creates a whole range of different dynamics in terms of height and light access and form and, uh, inter, uh, and, uh, and uh, interrelations that those individuals will have each other at different stages of their, of their physiological um, state. And, um, so we manipulate that with thinning. And um, then with coppicing, we... Um, and we do what I just mentioned, and we might do that as part of the thinning regime and then promote um, particular uh, individuals in a stand of trees, which we will never coppice because they're more, you know, their form is so magnificent, that their physiology is so magnificent that they're more valuable to us for their genetics than for the, for the wood that they have. Um, as a genetic contribution to the following generations, or in fact, in harvesting that seed and then selling it to somebody, which some people do. Um, and then you've got everything that's, that's in flux. Um, and so understanding what type of outcomes you want. Do you want to produce saw logs? Do you want to produce fencing posts? Do you want to produce firewood? Do you want to produce tool handles? You know, all of these different things. Um, generally uh, are best, best served by uh, being in a, in a coppice forest if you want to um, have something that you don't want to re-establish. And then you've got the other type of coppicing, which is, where, which is called pollarding. And that's where you um, grow a stem up, a trunk up to a particular height, usually breast height or so, where you might cut off that tree there. And then the tree will, will then grow a whole set of new um, sprouts from that point. And that's been used, been done for centuries as a source of, you know, for willows, for making, for basketry material. Um, but then also for making tool handles and for fodder. Um, so, you know, those, those uh, uh, regrowing stems are cut and then thrown to, to livestock as a, um, and then let to recover. 
and then you can just do it perpetually. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways that we do that, that as well. It's amazing how much power you yield with just these three kind of basic management techniques, but how much of an influence it can have on yield, on harvest, on shaping of the landscape and the trees and the way that they interact with one another. It's, uh, well, it's really economy, something that deserves the detail that's written about. And the economy, I mean, which yeah, I haven't yeah. dealt with in large part yet because we haven't written that chapter. But, um, you know, the economy of a coppice-based landscape versus an industrial, say, pulp wood landscape um, is vastly different. For one, you only need, with the pulp wood landscape, there's nobody there. It's usually replaced people with huge plantations of species which are all just going to be turned into toilet paper and paper um, and very little value. You know, every, these days I was in Brazil um, earlier this year in the middle of nowhere and there was an industrial eucalypt pulpwood plantation and there was nobody there. There was just a couple of guys on excavators with, um, with fronts on them which just grabbed each tree. They had an integrated chainsaw and then that stripped that and then it went through that whole head and it stripped all of the leaves and the side branches off and then docked it into two or three pieces and then he put it in a stack and he just did that on literally tens of thousands of acres versus wow. a coppice-based system um where oh i'll give you an example versus say a cork plantation in in rural spain where you've got say 20 cork trees, which are oak trees, every hectare. And every 13 years, there would be a mosaic of um, a hectare or two in those agroforestry systems where there'd be a, an old guy and a young guy working as a team, a master and apprentice, working on a tree together. And then, you know, this is a largely rural society and then women coming out and supplying them with food and, you know, a whole cultural apparatus, which is built around that um, 5,000 year old agroforestry system. Right. That's, I'm so glad you use it as an example because that's exactly the environment that I live in now. When we spoke before, yeah. I was in Guatemala and I've moved now to Catalonia. And I recently yeah. went to the, uh, the Cork Museum that they have yeah. um, near Girona. And mm -hmm. they walk through all that exact... Uh, well, you go out. I mean, I've been out with those people and it's just the most beautiful thing. But then is. you go... I mean, I've got clients who... And I grew up in the coppicing system myself. I mean, we go out and there'd be a team of us. And we go out and do coppicing. Like mm -hmm. just to just to go out and clear all of the, you know, because when you get all the regrowth, you've got to thin those regrowth back to one. I mean, that's it's yep. not a work that you are going to get too far with if there's just one person. I mean, it's there's a lot of stems to cut back. So you'll do that as a team. Um, there's no team on an excavator. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Where you're running around cutting trees, dropping them onto the ground. I mean, that thing's a... It's, it's swinging a tree, a, you know, a 40-foot, 50-foot tree around like a matchstick. Um, it's a dangerous place to be around. So, yeah. Anyway, you get the picture. And then I've been in, I've got a client in England who's got a 4,000-hectare chestnut and oak coppice system. And it's magnificent. And he's got tons of people that have to work out there. And they all, you know, you've got charcoal people and he's got tool handle people. And 
saw log people and, you know, and biomass people and all sorts of people that are going out there and inter and hunters and, you know, all the rest of it. It's, it's so much better. Uh, and there's so, so much, much that comes dynamic. out of it other than just the management of that landscape. But like you mentioned, yeah. the cultural elements, what it breeds is an understanding of the people who interact with it, of the value of these things as well and how to interact well, with them wipe, in a healthy way. You don't way. wipe your bum with cork, <laughs> right? Which is... Well, yeah. They started you making know, as, cork paper. Who knows? Maybe in the well, future. Well, <laughs> well, I mean, well, I think uh, no, uh, well, unfortunately, unfortunately, they're they're having to extend their. They've had the real problem um, that everyone's uh, the main user of cork, of course, is is not Birkenstocks. It's um, it's been wine bottles, and um, it's only now even champagne bottles or yep. sparkling wine bottles are going with with um, with uh, metal tops. So, oh, yeah, yeah. of course, as an industry, they're going all right. Well. What are the other uses that we can use cork for? Which is ridiculous, of course. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> so, so let's talk a little bit again about the harvesting aspect. In one of the sections on harvesting, you cover sort of the main categories of products that have economic value in forest systems, mm -hmm. which are fruits, nuts, timber, and forage. Could you talk mm -hmm. about balancing the need to create efficient harvesting and maintenance designs, oftentimes that include machinery, with the fact that natural forest systems don't grow in a way that are conducive to that type of like large scale management and involve much more diverse polycultures that are sometimes at odds with the economics of the farm. Yeah, well, that's part of the, the seriousness of planning um, in this. And that's why I, I, I sort of speak as a bit of a, a canary for a lot of people in that, you know, there's all of these loud, um, powerful voices out there that are, you know, promoting all of this stuff and it all looks great and it sounds great, but then the rubber hits the road on very much the, the, um, the, uh, with very much the points that you've raised. I mean, I've done a, I've done a lot of forestry in my life since I was a kid. Um, so I, I know the game pretty well, both with fruit trees, but particularly with timber and coppicing um, systems. Um, I mean, our farm had three different forests on it and then it was surrounded by a native well, what is now a national park and it was a state park at the time, which we also used to interact with and manage before it was all locked up. Um, so I know how much time it takes. And I suppose the first half of my career where I was a younger, um, you might say bright, bright eyed, bushy tailed, eager beaver, um, I would, and I didn't have this platform in front of me. Um, then my eagerness saw me see the world through the tree as opposed to see the world through a well-managed tree even though we always promoted to people um, from the from the get-go that you you know if you're going to get the results that you should that are there um, then you need to manage but even then we just weren't paying enough attention i think to to um, understanding as well as we could the time and motion that that would take the commitment that would take the famine and feast festival that goes on. Um, it's a long time between drinks with a lot of these woody plant systems. You know, you've got a, you've got a lot of spending to do of time and money and energy and all the rest of it <clears throat> before you actually get a yield, um, which pays that back. So, and then you've got all of the other things that you've got to do, um, which is particularly difficult for people in a transition because you really don't want to load yourself up. And I probably talked about this with you last time. You don't want to load yourself up with too much new innovation. Um, so 
I think, you know, take, take a five or 10 year or even 20 year approach to the establishment of these systems so that you don't bite off more than you can chew, um, that you don't have more in front of you and such that, you know, um, we got to, we did an interview, I think it was last year with Andrew Stewart um, and Rowan Reed. Rowan Reed's a very well-known person in Australia, at least he, released a book last year called uh, Heartwood, which is a brilliant book. But before that, he wrote a, released a book, I think in 1994, called um, the, the Handbook, uh, the Ag- Agroforestry, Agroforestry for Australia and New Zealand. And it still is ostensibly our, you know, 30 years later or whatever, 35 years later, oh, sorry, 25 years later, um, the, the main manual for agroforestry in Australia and New Zealand. Anyway, I spoke to him and his offside or his old mate, um, Andrew Stewart, who's a sheep producer. But he, Andrew um, went back to his farm and started putting agroforestry systems in, you know, shelter belts, timber belts, block plantings, blah, 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 with a view in large part to timber production, to high-quality timber production. Well, after, after his 25 years of development, and we're all about the same, oh, they're a bit older than me, but, you know, mid, mid to late 50s, very fit men, they've got kids that have grown up, et cetera, on these properties. They've all, they're now, ex, the volume of woody biomass and the value of that has now exceeded what, what, their, what their previous and still coexisting agricultural system does. So that's a succession that's occurred, but that's occurred by them being conscious managers of time and energy, um, of their of their context, their social context and their financial context, and to the point where you know they've they've layered in another whole range of production outcomes, which are higher of higher value and biomass production than the original. And I think that's a that's a mm. really great case to look at, you know. And they've done that responsibly. So I often look at things like that, and I look at my early part of my career where I probably. Um, planted too many trees on some clients, well, not say probably, I did encourage the planting of too many trees at once on particular clients' properties when I, when I should have known, and I know better now, that they were never going to be able to look after them all. And so I've got a few shitty plantations around, which I'm not, you know, it's great to plant millions of trees, but I would have preferred that most of them um, were in a, um, a better state um, than, than what they are now. I mean, they're grown, that's great. So they're there and they're photosynthesizing and they're performing ecosystem services and all of the rest of it, which is all fantastic. Stabilized, you know, they've taken carbon out of the atmosphere and all that great stuff. But in terms of developing the, the, uh, the end results, which I pitched to those clients or that they wanted from me, I probably went too hard on going, yeah, you should do this many. They should have done fewer and better rather than more and not so well quality over quantity absolutely which uh, yeah let's not open that pandora's <laughs> <laughs> so look the challenge for a lot of people that i've talked to who want to get started in agroforestry is the initial investment of buying and planting all the trees needed especially for large acreage and so how would you recommend someone get started with a small scale or a small or medium scale tree nursery so they don't bite off more than they can chew like we were just talking about? 
not only to yeah. bring down initial costs, but to begin, especially to select for desired traits and resiliency, or even experiment with species that maybe they weren't uh, accustomed to in the beginning. Yeah, I'm not a big encourager of going too radical there. Um, and again, it's kind of like, all right, let's just follow the 80-20 rule. Um, stick with what you know will well, what is what are most likely to be the best bet species, and maybe just do 10 or 20 percent, which are the which are the experiments. If you go the other way around, well, then you know that's just too innovative on a whole range of levels. So um, you've got to cover some your bases species. first. Well, yeah, you've got it. Yeah, exactly. So if you're looking at doing this commercially, I mean, you don't, you know, if you run it, if you start a new business, generally, you don't go and um, start with a with with eighty percent of what you're doing is being being um, being unlike well a high chance of not working. You maybe go out there with five percent or two percent or something, right? If you're going to give yourself any chance of success, probably. And really, it's no different in this sort of stuff. So, I'm um, there's lots of different techniques for being able to. Um, grow a lot of trees in a small space. I mean, some people get old um, fruit bins, you know, for, and uh, I know people like, uh, oh, oh, my friend, uh, Harry, Harry uh, Green, who's um, part of the Propagate uh, Ventures group. Um, he was growing chestnuts and uh, I think uh, that was his name, um, Grant Schultz, Versaland years ago. He was, you know, getting an old wooden fruit bin or a, um, an IBC or something like that filling it up with some soil and just some potting soil and then putting a whole lot of acorns or chestnuts in there and overstocking the system so that you've got this above ground bare root nursery where you can grow a two foot deep root system and a really healthy plant in a really small amount of area. I mean, that sort of stuff's really easy to do and you can do that with fruit trees and all sorts of things. Um, but then you've got stuff that has to be grown with smaller seed and perhaps needs something to go in a container. Well, there's lots of different containers that are out there. The type of containers that are fused together into a number of cells and, you know, have, have root system or they have, uh, um, you know, they're between four to eight inches um, deep or, you know, uh, you know, between 100 to 200 millimetres um, deep. And they have a hole at the bottom, which, um, and which you can suspend on some mesh so the plants that you grow in there can, um, when the roots get down, they air prune and they don't, the roots don't come back up like a J inside of the pot. And right. there's those sorts of things. Like you can generally get potting mix. You know, if you live in the US, for example, go to Home Depot. The potting mix there is not great, but it's not that bad either. Um, and you can get away with that. Um, or you can go to, you know, go to your local nursery supply or whatever. You can get, you can, if you want to go a bit further, you can usually in the nursery trade, you can buy one cubic meter or one cubic yard blocks of potting mix, which is a really economic way of buying it as opposed yeah, to yeah. buying those. A lot less waste bags. too, all those plastic bags. A lot less, yeah, yeah, all, of, yeah <laughs> all of that stuff. So they've often got, you know, you can take the bags back and all that sort of stuff. So that sort of thing, really great. Um, or of course, you can go and make your own if you're, if you're really keen. But the type of containerized systems are really good. Um, and then you just start small. I mean, I, we had a nursery way back when. We just used um, waxed milk, milk um, cartons, yeah, which we put a couple of holes in. And we put them into 
um, borrowed uh, milk crates because everyone borrows milk crates, as we realise. Um, <laughs> and um, we put those into a milk crate and I'd put an acorn in each one. And it was a nice, you know, it's nearly a foot deep. And I suspended those up so that as the, as the roots came down, they didn't jay inside. I've got a very cheap, big container. And I go, I used to give them away and sell them. And there's trees all over. There's oak trees all over the place. Cork oaks and holm oaks and turkey oaks and all sorts of different oaks that I used to grow that I can now, now visit and uh, uh, be, be uh, in wonder about. Um, so that was actually one of the first things I started to do when I first moved to Spain was just like going and collecting seeds that had fallen because I got here just before the autumn. And I've been sprouting things in like old... Uh, plastic uh, water jug containers and anything else whatever exactly like that and you know um, the one that I've been having success with lately is the pomegranates of course there's a million seeds in any one of those fruits and you just you know pack a spot with them make sure the soil's deep enough and they start coming up just as well yeah they do they do yeah (laughs) and then you can get then you've got the whole cutting culture and yeah all that what like the best you can either go and get very product orientated in this whole nursery space where you get the right container and you get the right misting system and the right blah, blah, right polytunnel and all that. But then you've got a lot of people who develop these really, um, well, they get, they've got green thumbs or they develop them and they just use the refuse of society, anything from a toilet roll to a, there's just so much. Yeah. There's so much stuff that you can use as a container. Um, they use their own compost, which they mix with sand, you know, river sand or whatever going on, and they just they just get by. And it, again, it's that eighty twenty rule. It may not be as great as as you can buy, and it might cost you a bit more. But have you had a good time? Has it made you feel good? Well, you know, a lot of people are short on those feelings these days. So why the hell not? Yeah, there's good value just in that alone. Yeah, now- yeah, and being able to come a friend coming around and giving a plant away. I mean, how good does that make you feel? And then going and looking at that in 20 years time that's a great feeling that's one of the best gifts you can give it just keeps getting better over time everything else moves towards entropy yeah that's right so look let's focus lastly on the last section of the forestry chapter and this is increasingly important these days with climate change and and really degraded landscapes especially for many Mm -hmm. temperate forests we're talking Mm -hmm. about fire now And Mm -hmm. fires, of course, are a natural and healthy part of the cycle of these types of forests. How can Mm -hmm. we manage our designed forests in fire ecologies and help to prevent the catastrophic fires that we've seen in recent years in places like California and Australia? Um, By intervening. um, And that's that's largely... We had to talk about this last week because... um, this, this week uh, in the rec, current recs that we've got, we've, we're in the, uh, well, sorry, the last, the week that we just did was buildings and before that we did forestry. And so, and forestry is always a topic which carries over. <laughs> you know, people, when we've got our Q&A, even though it was the buildings people, uh, building week, people saying, asking questions about forestry because there's such a, um, an enthusiasm for the, for the whole uh, topic, for the whole layer. And we're talking about fire naturally, and we've had, as you might have heard, some pretty big fire events here in Australia, millions of, literally millions of hectares, which is millions of acres, where yeah, people are living. So, you know, you know not, not sort of areas where people aren't living. These are period, people where a lot of people are living. Anyway, um, and it's, it's been amazing that so few people have died, and um, you know, my thoughts go to their families. But, um, uh, but there's, you know, the, one of the, 
one of the biggest reasons. It's it's hard to put you know finger on one reason why these things happen. There's always a number, but one of them is just that it's political, and this is what I was talking about. There's a lot of people who who was who are ecologically illiterate, unfortunately, and that's a that's a growing phenomenon. Unfortunately, it's one of the reasons why we invested our money to build a house in something like the Polyfaces film. Um, and it's one of the reasons why we're putting everything else into this into this book because we want to raise the bar of ecological literacy so that people, when they make voting decisions, mm. don't support people who support particular policies that lack intervention. Now, I don't, I really don't want to, and this is this is the tightrope of this because there's, I don't want to see personally a situation where where that intervention goes too far. It's always the case, you know, it's, 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 it's not, you should, you shouldn't have or feel that it's okay to, to have an, uh, a, a, you know, be at one end of the pendulum or other. And one yeah, end is where is we, paramount. absolutely. I mean, it's a balanced game. And, you know, I was listening to some Aboriginal um, um, fire uh, makers and managers uh, recently on on YouTube and and because um, you know where's their voice been in all of this? Um, you know, I'd say in North America it's hardly been there, and that's that's a function of colonialism. And now we should be we should be damn well past colonialism by now. I mean, you know, it's been a while since yeah, you think right? <laughs> yeah, you, you sort of go, hey, these people were here a while; they seem to be do all right. <laughs> yeah. And so we come along and then all of the shit hit the fan, you know, well, maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe we should go and talk to them a little bit more. So that's starting to happen. Um, and it's amazing. They sort of go, oh, right. Well, we do this, this and this. Oh, those interventions aren't as bad as the ones that we have. Maybe we should do that a bit more. But, you know, we aren't. Um, and you've still got the dynamics of policy and it's complex because as well uh, as it is in agricultural policy, forestry policy is the same. It's, it's, there's entrenched um, orthodoxies of practice and thought, which are in themselves often um, based on that they have colonial underpinnings. You know, there's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of practices in both agriculture and in, well, in all forms of culture, but in agriculture and forestry, which are, which haven't um, haven't stepped outside of their colonial underpinnings, and so there's a lot of concepts which have come from the old world, which have come to the new world, which are just totally inappropriate still. And in large part, fire management is, um, I would say, is part of that. You know, you've got U- largely European um, experts and policymakers and managers who are managing these systems through the lens of, of colonials, as opposed to considering um, how these systems were once managed before by, in, in the case of the Australian continent, possibly 100,000 years of continuous management, um, which is an unfathomable amount of time. Um, and in the American continents, um, perhaps uh, 15 or 20 or 30,000 years of time. So, you know, that's one place to go. Um, the other place to go is where we're using fire and we're encouraging the use of fire management with fire itself. And then there's the use of 
which is sort of maybe a halfway and perhaps a bit of a new intervention because we have this possibility. I mean, Indigenous people didn't have electric fences um, and that sort of thing. They didn't, they didn't have some of the tools that we now have at our disposal and a different, a different vehicle for the reduction of fuel biomass, which is, you know, often the, the problem with these things. So um, we can use livestock to manage that as well. But then, of course, you've got non-Indigenous livestock integrating in with Indigenous plantings, and then that opens up a whole... Oh, God. Yeah, uh, it gets ecolo tricky. <laughs> <laughs> ecological Pandora's box, and so on it goes. And um, when, when in actuality, I mean, obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're largely dealing with, with highly deserved, um, disturbed ecosystems, which have perhaps for two or three or 400 years, or maybe more um, in South America in particular, that have maybe had 500 years of European intervention and then hands off and you can't expect that you know you've got missing pieces everywhere i mean where's all of you know we've lost hundreds of species of mammalian species which used to live in that you can't just replace them and all of their dynamic functions and all of the species that we didn't even know exist which are now extinct at settlement you can't just go and replace them all of a sudden you can't just create a species factory so you have to deal with analogs and that's the best we can do. And so, you know, the, the notion of using analogs as a management tool, you know, we had megafauna here now, we don't have a lot of them now. So we had them once, we did, don't have them now. You used to have bison all across the North American continent. Where are they now? Buffalo bills or fit to them, you know? Mm. So, so what are we going to use? Well, we use the herbivores that we, that we brought over from Eurasia. Um, so that's another way, but um, and then we've got humans with chainsaws. Why can't why have you know, it, it's a it's a common trait that in most of the Western countries that practice forestry, there's very little value added. There's there's not a lot of intervention. There's no thinning or pruning or any of that. Um, small family sawmills have have gone from everywhere. So you know how many sawmill roads are there across the colonized world? And you drive down, there's no bloody sawmill there, right? So, mm. um, so we see all of that and the absence of that higher value utilisation is, is also part of it as well. Even though the species, I know here in Australia, it's like we've come the best species of the world that have just, just gone up in smoke, but the people value them? No. Can they access them? No. There's some idiot in town who, th who, who thinks they're doing good, um, votes or, or promotes... A, a hands-off ecological management system, which is, well, comes to a conflagration. And it's just not reflective of how these things were managed originally too. Like there were always some interactions and oh. interventions for thousands and thousands of years, even before colonization. And I think it would be much more prudent to understand, to interact in a positive way yeah. with these rather than just say they're off limits and basically well, giving right. license to damage the rest of them. Well, that's right. And a lot of these people will, um, you know, on one hand, I mean, they're hypocrites. I mean, because on one hand they'll stand up for indigenous rights or that, this, that and the other, but then they won't allow humans to, to, to be a part of a forest when humans, indigenous humans have always been part of that forest. 
Mm. Right. So, you know, there's, but that's, that's just the, the disconnect that crosses all forms of society. Well, it goes back to like you're saying, it just it requires a better literacy of ecological mm. um, knowledge in general. And the work to, to raise that bar is, is more important than anything. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Because there might be a few experts, but if everybody else who doesn't understand these is still voting and making decisions, it's hard to make any real change. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I guess in your, your opinion, and, and with this focus on forests that we did today, do you think forests and, and woody perennial species in general can provide a substantial amount of the world's food needs? And is that even what we should be working towards? Well, it's a whole other discussion. I mean, I have a I have an unfinished essay that's been out there for some time that's called The Problem of the Omnivore, which is sort of a, a move, well, a play on words, um, paying homage to Michael Pollan's bestseller, The, the Omnivore's Dilemma. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we have a real problem as an omnivore. And, you know, if you are truly going to understand ecology, well, then you tend to start with understanding um, the trophic levels and and how they're all functioning with each other. That's really basic. I mean, I learned that in, in biology in year 10, in form four, right? So 10th grade. So it's, and you know, anybody who's had a Western education will have, that I've talked to pretty well knows that. In the same year, that's what they give you. And you go, okay, but where do you see that? So, and so when we look at the state of the world right now, um, we have a population, which I believe, um, yeah, look, yes, if we had a, a, a highly functioning poly tree, you know, the right number, you know, all of the stuff that you've just painted, could we feed the world with that? We could probably feed the number of people, but, but we wouldn't have as many chickens and pigs um, because if we take the fossil fuel energy part out and then we reduce the number of annuals that we are producing the number of calories that come from annual plants will be significantly reduced and that's that's certainly a part of the future which i think a lot of people are not considering we're all addicted to annual plants and they provide the primary volume of calories for our populations and also the 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 highest biomass um, of of or, um, animal bi- uh, biomass in the animal kingdom right now is made up of three omnivores: the chicken, the pig, and the human. And that's just not that just doesn't fit in with the plan here. It's an ecological mistake to think that that that's going to be able to continue for very long. Um, and it's only fossil fuels which allow that to be. So, you know, people say to me, "Oh, I'd love to run more chickens under trees." I say, "Well, you won't, because." If you don't feed those chickens enough feed, then you won't have, or those pigs, enough feed um, of a particular quality, then you just won't be able to run the number that you will. It's just an ecological, trophic, energetic reality, and it's, un, it's irrefutable. Um, so so that's, that's a big question, and that's going to be a big wake-up call for a lot of people, I suppose, that, um, um, and it may be more than a wake-up call. Um, uh, that that we're going to have to contend with in 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 a future where the the kinds of congealed energies that we base our civilization on currently are not as available as they once were. Yeah, and, and uh, it leads down the rabbit hole. The larger question is: is any configuration of supporting the population we currently have sustainable or 
feasible well, I mean, for, you know, for a much longer period of time. Oh, I mean, you just think about distribution. I mean, all of the energy that goes into distribution and all of that stuff. I mean, look, you know, Elon Musk is going to come up with something, right? Well, <laughs> I, 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 I'm yet to see it. So, and especially yeah. when you, when you look at the, when you look at the energy, you know, no one's having a real hard discussion about energy invested or energy, energy return on energy invested or the whole energy discussion. And un- unfortunately, and um, so that's a whole honesty that's uh, and literacy that people have got to get on board with. Um, so I prefer to, I prefer to be hopeful about that because I don't want to, I'm not a naturally a doomsday and, and all of the rest of it, but, but by the same token, um, we have to understand our limits. Um, yeah, and, you can't ignore reality but, either. Well, you can't, but then life begets life. It's quite phenomenal how much a system can produce. And, you know, you look at what David Johnson and his partner Sue have done with the Johnson Sue and the Beam composting method. And the volumes of, of biomass that they're able to produce by um, promoting a soil biology, which in itself has huge biomass and that's how the that's how the trophic levels work the more biomass you produce at the base the more that you can then support as you go up the trophic levels so there's a lot of promise out there um but there's no there's no future in anything that's not ecological because the kind of yields that david johnson is getting and others that are getting um in biomass is not happening by using artificial fertilizers because you just can't produce that much biomass. And it's certainly not possible if you then look at how much energy it took to produce that fertilizer, right? It's just, it's just, a, it's just an energetic stupidity to even entertain the exercise of trying to calculate that. So, um, you know, you're much better off just to, if you, if you want to have a discussion about producing yeah. yield, then get into the life business. Well, I'll call up and bother you about all of this when you come up with another chapter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, brilliant, Darren. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time. Uh, before you go, do you want to let our listeners know about some of the many resources that you have available for them to learn more and how they can get in contact with you and your team? Uh, well, I just go to the regrarians.org website and um, in there they'll see the front page has got a number of panels, which I make it as easy as possible. It's all black and white so that there's no gloss to, uh, to gloss you over with. Um, that's, very, that's very much on purpose. Uh, but just through the panels, um, we've got the Polyfaces um, film, of course, which uh, we've invested heavily in and um, has won many awards. Um, that's there to, to click on. Um, so you can watch that as a streaming or get that as a DVD. Um, although the DVDs are going to shortly not be available. So that's another story. Um, so just you know, go for the streamings. Um, and then we've also got the Regrarians Handbook, of course. And then we've got our courses. And in 2020, we'll be doing a, uh, a book tour because the book will be finished in 2020. There'll be announcements on that. And then we'll, uh, we'll also do a number of courses. And we've got our 13-week online course, which we do two times a year, um, which is great. So you learn how to create your own farm plan and we work with you and support you for a year in that. Um, within our Regrarians workplace community, which has got about 2,000 members now from about 50 countries, mostly non-English speakers, which is great because uh, we've got this uh, really vital community of leading agricultural uh, uh, regenerative agricultural practitioners and professional 
um, advocates and um, advisors and whatnot to uh, in this one community who can com converse in their own language, which is always amazing to bear witness to. And and yeah, so that's that's they're the sort of things that people <laughs> do. But yeah, keep an eye out. Go to the Regrains website. Pay attention to our uh, Facebook and Instagram channels, and um, yeah, sign up to join the become a member of the workplace. Marvelous. All good stuff. Well, Darren, again, thank you for your time. I look forward to catching up with you again uh, next go around. You have a great rest no of your day. No worries, mate. Well, maybe, maybe uh, when we get to the soils chapter. I'm looking forward to it. All right, All right you take care. You. Thanks for your support. Thank you. Bye. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by topic rather than wading through more than 100 interviews by typing in any keyword or topic that you're looking for in the search function on the podcast page. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, to beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design, philosophy, and so much more. Thank you so much to those of you who've taken the time to reach out via comments and emails. Your contributions help me to make this the conversation that it's intended to be and helps me create more of the content around the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, questions, or suggestions, be sure to send them to me at info at abundantedge.com and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so I'll catch you on next week's show.